Hey, everybody. Great to have you here. Those of you who are watching on video have already noticed that this is not the usual line editors, uh, well, video. And for those hearing on podcast, I have to explain, Jen Gerson is not here with me today. Uh, Mitch Heimpel is here with me today, and he will explain to you in a minute uh, who he is. Let me just tell you, the viewers and listeners, uh, what's up. Jen is sick. And uh, for those of you who have young kids out there, as God knows, I, I, I've been through this. Jen's little one just started daycare and is bringing home every germ and virus in uh, the, the known kingdom. And Jen has been trying to fight through what she thought was a cold all week. And actually, it was a strep infection. And it turns out, if you ignore those, they don't go away. So Jen on Friday was actually testifying before a parliamentary committee. And she used up the very last of her voice in order to do that. So she's got nothing left for a video or a podcast. But we've actually been thinking about broadening this out anyway. So this is a great opportunity for us to do exactly that. Before we get into the meat of it, I want to mention as well uh, to our listeners and our viewers and, and all line uh, readers, all Canadians in Atlantic Canada, while Mitch and I are sitting down to record this, it's Friday evening, and we know that Hurricane Fiona is making a beeline for you guys. So just a shout out to you. Uh, be safe. Uh, take good care of yourselves. Make good decisions. And good luck. Uh, when the weekend is over, whatever help you need, will we'll certainly, the rest of us will come uh, racing in to do our best. But good luck to you all. Be smart. Don't be that guy who makes the evening news for doing dumb stuff during a hurricane. Be the guy who doesn't make the evening news. So best wishes to all of you out there. All right, Mitch. So you're actually, it's kind of cool. You're our first special guest in one of these videos or podcasts. What an honor. Uh, yeah, I can tell. Uh, tell me, what, what do you uh, what do you do now? And we'll, we'll keep the bosses happy by giving uh, that a plug out. But then I also want to ask you what you did, because that's kind of why we're talking about uh, talking with you here today. So right now, I'm the Director of Campaigns and Government Relations at Enterprise Canada. We're a national public relations and government relations firm um, with a bunch of people you've seen on other forums other than me. Uh, but previous to this, I had been the Director of Parliamentary Affairs on Parliament Hill for Aaron O'Toole, and I'd served as a Chief of Staff in the Ford government, as well as the person in charge of running the Government House Leader's Office for that first wonderful Dean French year. You've been around uh, conservative politics for a long time, and you wrote a piece for us earlier in the week, and for line readers who wonder why the line suddenly went dark uh, this week, it's because I was supposed to be off in the back half of this week, and then Jen got sick, so that explains that. So our, our, our content pipeline dried up, uh, but Mitch, the last piece we were able to run at the line before poor Jen uh, went under the weather was yours. And it was a column that I don't know if I'm completely sold on the notion, but I was intrigued by the notion. You, as you said, have worked, you were in Aaron O'Toole's office, and I guess it'd be fair to say you yourself are a moderate conservative. You're from Ontario. Like when we talk about moderate conservatives, we probably mean guys a lot like you. What was your thesis this week when you wrote that column for us? It, it was essentially that there are, like there are moderate voters who vote conservative regularly, but that's it. That's all we're going to get from the middle of the, the middle of the political spectrum to the extent there's a middle. Um, and what got me thinking about that was I, I was I was perusing Twitter, the hateful place that it is. Um, and I came across a sort of discussion around Pierre Polyev's policy toward the Bank of Canada. And I think Jen was actually one of the people that was commenting on it, but there was sort of a, a free-flowing conversation underway. And there were people who were like, 
just sure that what Pierre had promised to do with the Bank of Canada was going to undermine the institution that is the bank. And I kind of looked at it for a second and I went, if after SNC-Lavalin and, and interfering with an attorney general and all the things that happened there in the middle of a, of a criminal prosecution, and if after everything that happened this summer with the Mass Casualty Commission in Nova Scotia and the RCMP, you are still willing to vote for Justin Trudeau because you think our institutions will be better preserved, we're never getting your vote. Like, you, you would prefer a drastically imperfect liberal to any Tory. And not just Pierre, but any Tory. And the, the, my favorite part about the reaction to the piece afterward was actually Aaron Wary of the CBC commenting on it. Because um, his argument was, well, they just executed the pivot wrong. And for some reason, the metaphor that came to my my uh, my head was a figure skater. That, you know, he didn't mind that we'd taken off on a triple axle, but he didn't like the landing. And I surmised that if we had landed it perfectly, he would have found fault with our costume. Although not with the prime minister's. You, in your column, said something interesting. And again, I'm, I'm not going to tell you I'm completely sold on this, but I'm intrigued by the notion. And you had said... I should, oh, and I should mention to, to the viewers, the podcast listeners won't know this, but to the viewers, yes, it, it's later on Friday evening. Mitch and I both have a, have a drink going. It's been a long week. So cheers to you, Mitch. You had mentioned a little bit about how people might identify themselves as moderates, but you as a conservative, someone who was on the inside for years, you were identifying them as liberals. Is there a self-identity gap you find? And I just don't mean with liberals. I'm not picking up on them. But do people think of themselves politically as being one thing, even if they are, in fact, for your purposes or the purposes of any political operative, something different? So, listen, there's a there are always going to be people in each party that don't belong there. Um, and there's any number of reasons that they would exist. They, they, their family could be liberal forever and they just inherited the tradition or Tory forever and they just inherited the tradition. They could prioritize certain things over others. So I, like in my case, I'm a defense hawk. And, and that's just how I identify, right? And, and I don't find a reasonable foreign policy since the mid-60s coming from the Liberal Party. So I find a home with the conservatives, right? But that's my priority set at work. I don't think that we, that we find a lot of people, aside from those who work in politics, who sort of tribally identify that way. I think it's reflexive. So with a lot of the people I'm talking about, their natural impulse is to just vote liberal, is to basically support the status quo as it has existed for decades or however long they've, they've been politically aware. Um, and it takes a, a breaking or like a, 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 an Armageddon event to change that. So look at like the 2018 election in Ontario uh, the 2011 federal election, right? Like where you see these massive drop-offs in liberal support. And that is, is literally a, I can't do it this time, but I'll be back kind of mentality. And sure enough, it, I mean, with the exception of the Ontario liberals who are in some wilderness, uh, it, it ha certainly happened in 2015 with the federal liberals. One thing that I remember years ago, and this is before I was in journalism, but I, I was an adult, I was in university, the town I had grown up in, uh, Richmond Hill, Ontario, just north of Toronto, was 
typically liberal, but it was one of those seats where the conservatives could win it in a good cycle. Like it was blue enough to be flippable if everything went right, but most of the time it was going to be liberal. And I remember, again, this is I'm in university and like my dad comes home and he, he walks in and his hair's neatly done and his beard's been shorn. And he's like, well, this Harper guy is going to win. And I was like, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I was just at the barbershop and it's three old school, like genuine straight out of Italy uh, immigrants who just run an Italian style barbershop in Richmond Hill. And they always would have like liberal election signs up in their window come vote time because the liberals brought them into the country. They had a blue sign up and they were furious about ad scam and they were furious that their money had been stolen. And my dad just said to me, and this is again, almost 20 years ago now, I guess, when he knew his barbers had moved liberal to conservative, he knew something was coming. And I think there are moments in our politics where you will see a critical mass break. But to your point, do you then capture them? So all those people who were furious in 2004, even 2005, about ad scam, I mean, people who in 2011 were freaked out about the global economic crisis and, and the coalition thing, you can get them to vote for you, but can you keep them? Or do they park their vote with the conservatives once because they're angry at the liberals? So I think, I think a couple of things here. First, it's important to understand politics is a, a cycle of of voter alignments. So the current one, which we've sort of lived in, and I talk about in the piece, has sort of basically existed in this country since the 84, the, I think I said the first Turner Mulroney broadbent election, is pretty much along the predicated lines of inner suburban, upper middle income people being the swing voters. This, by the way, is not unique to Canada. Um, as working class people started to migrate from the left to right of the spectrum, these voters started to go the other way. And you saw this happen in the United States with Bill Clinton. And then certainly it just, it got steroid induced with Barack Obama. Um, these were the voters Tony Blair went after in the United Kingdom. Like these sort of upper middle income, like I say, upper, like inner suburb kind of voters. Think of people who live in North Vancouver is a good example. Uh, people who live in North York, a lot of North going on. Um, people who live in, I mean, what, like the Ottawa suburbs are another good example. The Ottawa suburbs used to elect a lot of Tories and they're now electing a lot of liberal. Um, these people have migrated into the middle of the spectrum. They're, they're a little too wealthy to ever fully migrate to the left. Um, but they're, they're pretty much the voter that we've been fighting over. Um, and they've got increasingly more female over the last 40 years, which is an important distinction. Um, they're no longer, I think, the swing voter that we understand. I think if you distinguish what a centrist is now versus what we conceive of a centrist to be, they're two very different people. We view moderates as people who are sort of tightly packed into the middle of a, of a spectrum or on a narrow set of policy priorities on any given issue. The new centrists, sort of these these Gen Zers in some cases, um, new Canadians also though, uh, in some cases of the, the housing issues huge uh, in that case, are to the right on some issues and to the left on some issues and they sort of aggregate out into the middle. So if you take a, a good example, there's a lot of voters who voted for Justin Trudeau in 2015 to legalize marijuana who are now big Pierre Polyev people because they haven't been able to afford a house since you know pot was legalized. 
And that policy shift radically to the left one way on an issue, radically to the right another way, starts to, and not even that radically to the right, but just to the right in another way, sort of averages out into who the new swing voter is. I want to ask you a question. I mean, I want to dig deeper into that, but I want to ask you this first. One of the things, and I, I suspect, were you involved in, were you a data guy when you were with the conservatives? Um, not federally. Okay. Uh, well, all right. I can't, I can't blow anyone's cover, but after the 2021 election, I happened to take a peek at some conservative data, which fell off the back of a truck uh, in, in my proximity. And one of the things, and then eventually public data came out and you could actually look at this. But one of the things I don't think the general public has understood about the 2021 vote is that it was actually incredibly close. And what I mean by that is that even though the liberals were way, way ahead in, in seat counts, ultimately, there were dozens of ridings in this country, particularly in Ontario, where the margin of victory for the liberals was really, really small and the conservatives were right behind them. And I, I've, I've thought about this often since. If the O'Toole campaign, which at the time I was very critical of for some communication failures, if they had responded better and faster to some issues, if Justin Trudeau had like flubbed a word at some press conference and had an embarrassing scandal, if the NDP had done slightly better, it could maybe have actually tipped with a very small movement in the polls, dozens of seats that would have gone liberals to conservatives. And one of the things I find curious about this, now I know probably a lot of conservatives have been consoling themselves with that over the last couple of years. Oh, we, we came so close. Zero, none. <laughs> Zero, okay. None. I'll take your word for that. Conservatives care about the result, not the score. What, what I have often wondered is why the conservatives couldn't get that extra 1%. And if like, and your column suggested a possible answer to that, that it wasn't the leader, it wasn't the campaign, it wasn't any of the issues that came up along the way. It's that the conservatives have already maxed out the number of moderate voters they're going to get anything outside of one of those elections we talked about where people have decided to throw out the liberals. So I think I want to address a couple of things there. The first of which is, and this will segue into Pierre later. I think that if you look at that campaign, I don't want to exempt the leader, the campaign, anything from from the result because everything plays a role in the end in the end result. Um, I think if you look at how the first couple of weeks of of Pierre's leadership have gone, he's like glued to messaging on inflation, right? And we were blown around a little too much by what the issue of the day was. And as a result, our message could get lost. Um, so even though we'd released an incredibly comprehensive platform, looked a lot like a men's health magazine, like we just, we got, we weren't able to as effectively channel messaging or a zeitgeist around the cost of living or anything else. And part of that was the pandemics to be sure. But to your to one of the points you made, like the prime minister in the middle of that campaign came out and said he doesn't think about monetary policy. Like we did get a hanging curveball over the middle of the plate. Um, so I'm not, I don't want to excuse us on that one. I will say if you take a really interesting example, okay, so Kitchener Conestoga is a good one. The, the sort of suburb outer suburbs around the city of Kitchener, including some of the the more rural townships. 
Tim Lewis, who's the liberal incumbent, has basically won the last three elections all within like a 500 vote margin of, of his result, right? This Roughly the same number of people within a percent or two are voting liberal. What has happened to the conservatives over that time is from 2015 to now, more people are voting conservative. And then from 2019 to now, roughly the same number of people are voting conservative. So our reach isn't expanding. The liberal reach isn't expanding. And you end up locked in a trench warfare scenario. Now, after the column got published, I, I had this interaction with somebody and they said like, you're saying you can't grow anymore inside of the electorate. And that's not the case, right? 65% of people are gonna vote in elections, roughly, right? 60 to 65. But that assumption causes people to think that it's the same 65% of people in every election. And what I think I'm trying to say is the conservatives are saying, what happens if we bring in 5% new people to the electorate? What if 5% of them drop off because they're disenfranchised with the process, they've, they've died, they, anything else, but the 5% of new people that enter that's roughly 65% that are going to vote are people who've never engaged in politics before. They're not what we would understand to be moderates or centrists or whatever the heck you want to call them. They're just, they're either motivated, angry, polarized, whatever version of this you want to call it. And they're coming out just for our guy. Different election. When we talk about growing the share of the moderate vote, and this is my analysis, and I'm not trying to sandbag you here because I imagine you were part of some of these conversations. My read as a political observer on the outside looking in of recent conservative uh, history, Conservative Party of Canada history, basically goes something like this. Stephen Harper unites the party, blah, blah, like has his time in office. I don't care about the Harper years. Exhausts himself, exhausts the party. Voters want to change. Boom. Conservatives get bumped out. They try Andrew Scheer. Doesn't work. Aaron O'Toole runs a I'm with the rock ribbed conservative leadership campaign, instantly reverts back to what he always was, which is the GTA area conservative moderate in the election and sells the party on the notion of you're not going to like it. You're going to have to water down your wine. This isn't going to be the, the kind of conservatives you want, but I can win in the GTA and that's where we have to win. And then he loses. He doesn't win in the GTA. And now we're seeing this new course for the conservatives. We think, I guess we'll see what Polyev does eventually. When we, we look at the, the conservatives here, one of like, again, like I said, I found your column really interesting, but I did see some of the, the response to to the column, and I, I saw you respond to some of it on Twitter. Maybe you could have gotten those voters you needed. Maybe you just didn't get them last time. And is is there a chance that you guys are overreacting to a defeat that might have been as much about circumstance as it was strategy? Let me put it to you another way. Let's Let's talk about a hypothetical universe, all right? where Aaron O'Toole does not get purged from the party about a year ago, for whatever reasons, this doesn't happen. Aaron O'Toole is still the conservative leader today. We have an election a year from now, three years from now, Aaron O'Toole wins 200 seats by appealing to the exact same guys he was trying to last time. Obviously timing matters in politics, but 
Is it possible the strategy was fine? It just wasn't ready yet in 2021? So, okay, yes, that's always possible. I think you have to, when you look at a political party, you, you, there are basically two routes to power. The first is wait for the government to unelect itself, which is sort of what you're talking about, right? Like you get the right set of circumstances. The other guys put their foot in it one too many times. You know, they sell Hydro One or something like, you know, they unelect themselves. That happens. But it's not sustainable, right? And if you think, especially in Ontario and Quebec, right? Because this is a very central Canadian kind of thesis that the reflex of the average moderate centrist whatever voter is going to be to vote liberal is going to be to protect their own economic self-interest and reinforce the status quo as much as humanly possible which by the way we don't fault them for they're acting in their self-interest then you're only going to form power when the other guys unelect themselves if you view your job as a political party though as sustained success like long-term sustainable success then you have to find a group of voters that are either accessible only to you or motivated only by you or some combination of both. And what I think abandoning this sort of we can chase this moderate middle-of-the-road voter that has been the target voter in every election since before I was born um, and try to appeal to somebody else is to try to set us up to say in every election there is going to be a subset of voters, a new subset of voters that the liberals cannot appeal to. They, they just have no time for the liberal party. Michael Balagas kind of talked about this a little bit in the, in the aftermath of the 2018 Ontario election, where he said that the anti-establishment voters New Democrats had always counted on were now starting to vote conservative, right? These voters are not accessible to the liberals. They will vote for us. They will vote for the NDP. They will vote Green. They will vote people. They just will not vote Liberal. Their reflexive anti-establishment mentality rejects that option out of hand. So how do we go get those people? How do we make them conservatives? Or at least in, in two out of three elections, or three out of four, how do we make sure that when they show up, if they show up, that they're going to vote conservative? That's a sustainable route to long-term competitiveness and success. I am extremely open-minded to the idea that you laid out in your column, which is that the Conservative Party of Canada has won as many moderates as it can, that it has grown, like that its left flank has extended as far as it can, and it's run into granite. It can't go any further. I'm completely open-minded to that being a possibility here. I do wonder if the party is overreacting to an incredibly close loss in 2021 is it possible and again you've already answered the question is it possible so let me ask this more more pragmatically here what needed to be different last time to get a different result so in dozens of ridings all across the country uh where one or two percent difference would have swung a seat liberal to conservative could there have been anything that changed differently in terms of a pledge uh, a strategy, more volunteers. Like, did you guys, like, if if we're going to accept the argument that the Conservative Party has maxed out its centrist appeal, it can't go any further, I think we should just interrogate that idea a little bit here. 
was 2021 the absolute maximum effort you guys could have put in into actually getting that centrist vote? So let's not talk about Ontario for a second, right? We've, we've done some great due diligence on, on the self-proclaimed center of the universe. Let's talk about the two seats we lost in Edmonton, right? So James Cumming is a wonderful MP, should still be the MP, um, the great human. Um, his share of the vote, in, in raw vote, okay, went down from 2019 to 2021. So did uh, so did Kerry Diaz in, in Edmonton agrees back. I would submit that the voters we lost in those cases, because they had clearly voted conservative, and, and they went down in a way that is well in excess of the way the total turnout went down. And that's an important point too, right? If you go down sort of as the turnout goes down, that's fine. Everybody will kind of be hit by the same thing. If you're If you see that kind of statistical anomaly where man, the conservative vote really drops and the turnout didn't drop that badly. There's a, there's a causality to that. Overextending to our left did cost us in some places. The problem is it didn't materialize any gains anywhere else. So you lose Kerry Diot or James Cumming you better pick up half a dozen, a dozen seats in Ontario. You better pick up three, four seats in Quebec to show that there's that like long term you're on the right track here. And just next time we'll we'll have a better message for for Alberta. Um that didn't happen. So the question is, how do we how do we square the circle of we've kept we've got it like the moderate voters who have abandoned Justin Trudeau are not going back. Right, the, the sort of as we understand, the moderate voters who've abandoned Justin Trudeau are no longer accessible to him while he's prime minister. He's got a fish to his left. He is, by the way, doing that quite well. Um, modern polls notwithstanding, uh, or current polls notwithstanding. Um, but clearly, the liberal strategy has been destroy the NDP, and some days that feels like the NDP strategy as well, too. But we need a different and. and some people will say, and, and you see this discourse on Twitter all the time, like we need a, a different set of voters and that means we have to go fish somewhere else. And people think, well, that means you're fishing to your right, right? You're going to go get the PPC voters. Some of them, maybe. The anti-establishment types, you will go get. Um, some of them aren't accessible to you and never will be because they view the conservative party as part of the same political establishment as the other party. Most of the people you're looking for don't vote or or are irregular voters, right? They show up in a provincial election. They voted for Doug Ford, certainly in 2018 in Ontario. Um, how do you turn them into more regular parts of the conservative coalition? What does that take? What motivates them? They seem at the moment to be hyper-motivated on economic issues. Um, the other one that's fascinating is still housing. Because if you... If you look, if you look at most public opinion research, there might as well not be another issue for Generation Z and late millennial, meaning born after 1989, men. They're they're so focused on the housing market at the moment that there's got to be a way to mobilize that, right? That's just where they are. And Pierre's got that kind of figured out. 
Um, Ford did really well with this demographic on a few different issues. Like that's just, that's a, a different group of voters. It's a different voter coalition. I want to ask you one more question about the pure politics of this. And then I want to talk with you more about the voter mentality. I like to talk about the voters, not the politicians, but one more political question. Some of the uh, feedback, I don't want to say pushback, but we'll call it feedback your column got, was that Doug Ford is maybe a counterexample to what you're talking about here. That the uh, election win that Doug Ford had just a couple of months ago, a smashing 83-seat majority. Like we've, I don't know if we've ever seen anything like that. It, it disproves your thesis. And I saw you responding, and I don't, I don't want to take, take the words out of your mouth here, but what you had said was that Doug Ford himself can get away with stuff that a generic conservative leader can't. Yes. So a, a number of pollsters have pulled this. The one I remember, uh, the two I think I remember actually are Nick Kuvalis and Greg Lyle. Um, but there are others. If you just look at empathy questions, right? Does this political leader understand where I'm coming from? Are they looking up for my interests? These kind of broad empathy questions, right? Traditionally, I, 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 when I do presentations on the state of politics, I tell people, these are the Jack Layton questions. These are the late questions where Layton just used to kill the other leaders, right? Layton was so empathetic that he would be well out in front of everybody else on that. People didn't want him running the country, but they felt they felt he felt their pain. Doug Ford gets credit for that in a way that a lot of conservative politicians don't. And so, and I know, I know the exchange you're talking about because it was me and an offline contributor, Ken Besenkel. Yeah, it was Ken. Um, but that kind of empathy marker is a personal identification between a voter and a politician. And it's hard for somebody else to just replicate, right? It may not outlast the politician. It may change the brand of the party they're running if they stick around long enough. You saw this happen with Tony Blair uh, in, in the UK. He fundamentally changed the way people look at the Labour Party um, in, 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 a, in a very significant way. Uh, Bill Clinton, and, and we've talked about, they, they did this with the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party is now sort of rejecting that as a false organ. <laughs> Um, but they, they, for, for 30 years, they did, um, can Doug Ford do that with the Ontario PCs long term? Like the answer is maybe, um, we don't have really enough data to figure that out, but one more point, I think on Ford, Ford ran on, and, and you guys did a wonderful, you and, and, and Colin Horgan and a few others last week, implicit in the message of get it done. And my colleague, Dennis Matthews, could probably talk about this forever, um, is sort of the acknowledgement that government... Oh, we're not getting it done. That, that governments fail yeah. people, right? Yeah. And, and that's just implied in the message of, like, only Doug Ford is going to be able to get this done. Like, whatever you, whatever, however you conceptualize it, building houses, building hospitals, building highways, building things, right? You don't need to submit yourself to a never-ending state of decline or frustration with government. You'd need a bull in a china shop sometime. Um, and that is a very powerful message for people who believe in, who have just resigned themselves to waiting longer for their passport than they did for Bruce Springsteen tickets. 
I want to ask you, as I said, that question of of the voters, not of the politicians. One of the you, funny you mentioned that decline column. Uh, Colin Horgan and I both here at the line last week writing about the the notion of whether or not we're in decline. Something I say often, it's almost becoming a little bit of my tongue-in-cheek uh, mantra, is that our expectations are a problem, which is that we, uh, you and I being around the same age, people even older than us, people, you, you already, yeah, you're probably right, call 1989 the cutoff, because uh, I was born in the early 80s. People born in the later 80s have grown up in a different world than I have, um, and that, that includes technologies they've had, but it also includes um graduating school just as the global economic crisis wiped out the job market in 2008 it it means coming into adulthood when it's impossible to live within 200 kilometers of the, of the town you grew up in because you can't afford a house probably for a lot of these guys it's going to mean uh growing up in a world where the kind of the nastier effects of climate change are kicking us in the ass and certainly right now it means kind of if you're if you're about 10 years younger than me you're probably dating, thinking about having a family, putting down roots. At the time when we're talking about the prospect of a nuclear exchange for the first time in 30 years, right? Like these people have had a very different adulthood than you and I did. One of the things when I talk about expectations being a problem, I can mean the world around us, but I can also mean, and I often do, our self-perception. And something you had said in your column, which is that, you know, a lot of you who identify as moderates are actually just liberals. You don't think of yourselves that way, but that's what you are. And then you also talked about how the power in our politics right now is at the polls. And this is a big part of your column, and we haven't even touched on it yet. What is happening to the electoral alignment in this country that is sort of you and I, I just don't mean as generic issue white dudes. I, I mean, specifically as people born in the early 80s establishing our careers, houses, spouses, families, et cetera. You and I are probably about as young as we can be while still being part of that status quo political coalition that has held forth for generations here. I think it's changing. Why? And you drew a distinction in your column. You said you're not moderates, folks. You're status quoists here. Tell me what you mean by that. So just look at life markers. Like, I like using when I when I do when I talk about this. I usually use myself and my father as examples because we're thirty years apart. So stats can makes finding stats about us real easy. Um, the average age somebody my father's age when he bought his first house was either twenty six or twenty seven. Uh, there was a great uh, piece of data out today showing that for somebody my age it's something like thirty two point nine. You got people that are marrying later which by the way, has all kinds of fertility issues. Like one of the things that we, we don't really talk about um, and conservatives are starting to get there. One of my, one of my favorite people to read because we were in the same staffer intake as Ontario PC staffers uh, is Jenny Roth. Um, so it was a good class that year. Uh, but, um, and Jenny's done a lot of great work on how we don't think of things as family policy that are family policy. And so if you've got people that are moving into homes later, like marrying later, all these things, the, that is huge fertility and growth implications that we just don't think about, right? So that's part and parcel of like, if you, if you take a generation of people and push them into the later part of life 
on all their milestones, you present a whole raft of difficulties that you didn't foresee when you set up the current economy, the current education system, all of these things, right? Another interesting example, um, David Frum talked about this this week. The peak of the baby boom in terms of years with the most number of births was 1957 to 1961, which means that those people are starting to retire this year. And for the next five years, the largest cohort of the baby boom is going to come off the labor market. You think labor shortages are a problem for the economy now? Can't find stat like so. We are facing a set of economic circumstances, which, by the way, were entirely predictable. We have known since the beginning of time that people would eventually hit a certain age. That age has always gotten longer as modern advances in medicine have changed, but aging has always been a, a fact of life. We've done nothing to prepare for it. So you have people meeting life milestones later. You have things getting more expensive. You have huge labor shortages in the economy. You have, by the way, like it is incredibly important to the future of this country that we admit hundreds of thousands of immigrants. It, it does wonderful things for the for the culture of this country. It, it proves that democracy it allows for multi-ethnic, multilingual societies to exist peacefully, which has never been a given in human history until now. But you have to plan for it. You have to build the houses and the hospitals and the schools to allow that to occur. And we have not. So you have parents, young parents in some cases, sending kids to overcrowded schools. You have people who can't get hospital beds. You have people who can't get passports because we don't have the workers working at the passport offices because they decided to use COVID to retire. You have, or by the way, they can't get on a plane. You have any number of issues, doctors aging out, and your state capacity now is zero. You and I are sort of the last group of people to come of age in any sort of world of abundance where it was very easy to acquire and find anything we wanted, not just stuff on Amazon, but like it was easy for our parents to find a family doctor comparatively. Now you better have a connection. You never had to doubt where your where passport was. There was always like 20 kids in a kindergarten class and never more. That's just not the case. And, and you're shocked that people are upset at this. So you, you end up with two groups. You end up with one group of people who say that clearly this is a, a failing of some unknown origin and we just need to essentially throw money at it or increase the state's ability to deal with the problems. And you end up with another group of people who say the state's failure to plan for this is the problem. And they fundamentally are biased against believing that further state activity will fix anything. I've often said that the doom of our civilization will be the Canadian centrist, um, which is probably not how the centrists think of themselves. And probably on a lot of metrics, even though politics, uh, politically, I, I, I lean to the right on a lot of demographic metrics and, and temperament, I'm actually quite moderate. Like I'm, I'm quite a centrist guy, but there's a degree of complacency that is a fact of Canadian life. And I don't, I don't want to totally derail uh, our conversation by veering off into another expectations being a problem rant here. But when you talked about something you said in your column really jumped out at me as something that I'm probably going to quote if I ever write another version of expectations being a problem, 
where you had said you were addressing the kind of the so-called moderate voter, the people we're talking about in the country, the like the well-educated suburbanites who own a home and have traditionally been the target for campaigns trying to pick up swing voters. People who live in Eglinton Lawrence. Sure. Or Don Valley West. Or, which is or Vancouver. I think I'm Don Valley West. Am I Don Valley West or East? I don't remember. I'm one of the Don Valleys. Um, you, something you said, I thought it was very simple, but I thought it was interesting, which is that the conservatives have decided they're not going to get your vote and that's fine because you don't owe it to them, but they are going to go look elsewhere and don't be shocked if they do. I actually think a lot of them are shocked. And I, I think guys like you and I, you, you mentioned at the start that you're a national security hawk and so am I. That's why I tend to be a conservative voter as well. But if not for that, I might well be a swing voter. And one of the things I find interesting is for 40 years, I have been the target. People have wanted my vote. And there, there's a funny story I could tell. Uh, this is years ago. It was on a radio interview. I had written a column that was being discussed on the radio. And a certain conservative was referring to my column on a radio interview, which a producer clipped and emailed to me to say, hey, Matt, check this out. And it was a certain conservative using my column as an example of the kind of person that his government was going to make life easier for that certain conservative was pierre polyev and he was on an interview having read an article i wrote being interviewed by a host and he says matt works hard we're going to make life easier for him and his family there is not going to be anybody competing for my vote in the next election i can choose who to vote for but i am not the target anymore i don't think you are either mitch Oh, God, no. No, but I haven't, uh, like, listen, I, I'm a committed partisan. I haven't been a target voter for anybody in, in decades. Um, this is, a, I think, an important point. We know that upper middle income, um, higher educated voters are just more likely to vote. Like, there's endless amounts of, of, of studies that you can find that correlate education and income to voter turnout. But you're also usually committed voters. So if I if I know you're going to go vote, I don't have to motivate you to go vote. You're going to. If you're going to make up your your mind regardless of what I tell you, why am I talking to you? Like so okay, I I like using Eglinton Lawrence because it it's moved uh provincially federally it's it's shifted it's usually like that that seat that only goes conservative in a majority government um i can spend a lot of money as a party trying to convince voters in lawrence park or go to don valley west when we talk about bridal path or or lee side to vote for me who are going to make up their own mind or, and the Ford guys did this really well. I can go down to Windsor, where nobody has voted for a conservative in 70 years, and say, we're going to build things that help you have a steady stream of income. We're going to support your union. We're going to make sure you got training. We're going to make sure that you can earn the paycheck that helps you afford life where you live. And where you live is key. 
for however long you want to talk about it, we have basically driven urbanization in this country through economic policy. Now, it was going to happen in some degree anyway. We just threw it in hyperdrive. But what Ford's doing, Polyev's doing a version of this, New Democrats, by the way, used to do this all the time, is say where you live, where you have chosen to live, the community of which you are a part, New Democrats would say the union of which you are a part, which is a different kind of community. You've made the choice to live there. And the government should sort of support that. There should be policies and there should be an acceptance that your the life you've chosen to live is one that is of equal value to people who decide to commute in the 90 minutes each way from Oakville to downtown Toronto, right? So what happens? Well, we got a competitive conservative race in Windsor. You've seen the number of memberships, like the voter turnout in some of those Windsor ridings in the in the federal leadership. Timmin, I honestly have Vancouver Island. That's not a metric I've looked at, but I do remember in the provincial election, even talking to some NDP guys, and they were blown away by conservative strength in some areas. Not necessarily areas where the conservatives, progressive conservatives, won provincially, but like some of the NDP guys I talked to said. You know, like they're still in third place, but they're a lot higher than they were four years ago. So you might have a riding in kind of the, well, a traditionally NDP area where it's always the NDP and then it's the liberals and then it's the conservatives. But the conservatives were just like theoretical also rands. They're not always that anymore. So I, I haven't looked at federal leadership numbers, but I do know that the other parties were freaked out by conservative gains in parts of Ontario. Yeah. So one of the one of the things that's happened if you look at the way Ontario policy has sort of shifted is we've generally accepted that if you live in Timmins or you live in Hearst or you live in Wawa um, or here in Belleville or, you know, you, you pick a small urban center to the extent Hearst is urban um, around the province that the kids seeking higher education will leave to, to go get a job. And they'll never come back. What the provincial government has decided to do is say, okay, but there's there's an institution in these communities here. We've got Loyalist College in Belleville. You go to Timmins, like there, there's colleges, essentially. We're going to attract professionals there and encourage them to stay. Okay. How does that change the makeup of the people living there, right? All the people who are who, who end up becoming upper educated end up or higher educated upper income people tend to leave. That fundamentally impacts the demographics 10 years down the line when they're in the job market. All those people, meanwhile, are clustering in the largest urban centers and they're getting paid a lot and they're driving up local rents and housing costs, pushing the people who did not pursue higher education or white collar jobs into those same communities the higher educated people came from. It's yeah. a sort of it's a demographic sorting effect. Yes. I've talked with you about the demographics of this. I've talked with you about the politics of this. I want to ask you a personal question and nothing, nothing too intimate. Um, one of the things you said in your piece, and I always find this fascinating, um, people are wrong all the time. I don't give anyone credit for admitting they're wrong when the facts have made it abundantly obvious they were wrong. I give people tons of credit when they tell me why they were wrong. 
Because look, every once in a while, life just proves you wrong. And you go, oh, well, okay, I was wrong about this. That doesn't take any particular kind of intellectual or moral courage. Looking at your past decisions and your thinking making, your, your, your thinking and your decision making and asking, why was I wrong? That is a lot harder to do than just admitting the facts of a situation. You talked about at the start of your column, how for years you believed and others around you in, in uh, kind of in and around Aaron O'Toole believed that you guys could win over more moderates. Two questions for you. The first, why were you wrong? So I was wrong because I thought that I was wrong because I thought that these people were approaching each new election as a blank slate without a preconceived idea or notion of who they were going to vote for. Um, you know, I thought they were they were walking into a a they were they were the control group, right? The the partisans are not are are not the control group on this one, right? So I thought, you know. I got some wonderful neighbors here in Belleville. They range from private sector to public sector employed that every, but most of them don't put out lawn signs. We're the only one on our street, which is perhaps a, not unusual. Um, I thought that they were approaching every election as a blank slate. And, and what I think is increasingly true in a social media age is people are so assaulted with various kinds of information that that kind of assumption is now just faulty. People have, and to a certain extent, it always was, people have preconceived brand notions of the various parties. It's just they used to be easier to shake, perhaps. Um, and so that that underlying assumption that we always had the same ability to approach those voters as the liberals did, I think, was, was a key problematic assumption to make. Uh the second um, area that where I sort where I think I probably got things wrong was that I assumed that anybody who wasn't between us and the liberals would cost us votes with the people who were like going out and trying to win other voters would cost us these moderate votes. Um, elections don't really work that way. Um, for one thing, people don't fit neatly on a 250-year-old political spectrum. Um, but for another thing, people are less concerned, I think, with how, if we had really gone after the prime minister on, on picket, like, like pick an issue, the, um, you know, not thinking about monetary policy, or if we'd really gone after him on, on the failed evacuation from Afghanistan, um, I don't think we would have alienated any of the middle-of-the-road voters we thought we were going after. And I think if we had really pressed the case on him on that, on housing, which is an issue we missed, um, and I want to give a shout-out, by the way, to Brad Viss, who's the MP for Mission Matsky somewhere in the lower mainland, um, because he kept telling us to do this, and we only half paid attention to him and we should have paid more attention to him. Um, but 
if we'd done that, if we actually tried to bury the needle and, and, and really go after a subset of voters that didn't exist between us and the liberals on a traditionally understood spectrum, but were single issue motivated on a few things. And by the way, the level of vitriol really doesn't matter in this equation either. Like the prime minister called us everything, every name under the sun, and we returned the favor and it didn't seem to offend any moderate voter at all. They still showed up. The, the, the professed squeamishness of moderate voters does not meet the actual squeamishness of moderate voters. Um, but yeah, I think the, those two things, the, the underlying assumption of, of how people approach elections and the sort of secondary assumption of whether their vote was dictated by how we approach somebody else, were both incorrect. I, I want to, for, you would have seen this, Mitch, and for video viewers, not podcast listeners, saw me giggling while you were talking there. I want to explain why, because you mentioned uh, Brad uh, Viss, I think you said his name was, who you weren't listening to. There, there's one person in my family, my uh, my beloved younger sister, who always constantly reminds us of the long list of times throughout our lives together where she has been telling us there's a problem and we just don't listen. And yeah, so I, I it just made me laugh because um, my aunt once got locked in a bathroom when the doorknob broke and my sister was telling us all, hey, she's stuck in the bathroom. And we're like, oh, that's, yeah, that's nice. Hey, we, we got to just get the roast out of the oven. Like no one would listen to her. So that, that made me laugh. I want to ask you a follow-up question to that. I asked you why you were wrong. You've answered. This one is interesting. When did you realize you were wrong? Because you you had admitted that you now think that you had been wrong in a column at the line a few days ago. I don't think you decided that that morning. Like, I don't think you woke up and like, well, I have changed my life views. Like, I'm curious about the process that leads you with all your political experience to kind of go... Yeah, hey, you know what? Maybe we were fundamentally wrong about this. And you've already mentioned that you had seen the debate online about uh, Pierre Polyev and the, and the Bank of Canada. I, I'm guessing that was not the first crack in your former certainty. No. Um, so debates about ideology have a tendency to mostly just reflect people's preferences, right? Um. And so I kept wondering, like, okay, if your only problem with the Conservative Party under Aaron O'Toole was that it was insufficiently moderate, what does your ideal Conservative Party look like? And how is that party different from the Liberal Party you have? And... I could come up with an answer that would explain like at the margins, maybe those things. Um, but I, the problem with it was it fundamentally didn't embrace the entire conservative ideological family. In fact, it, it viewed some parts of them as a problem. And so if if I can't get to a if the conservative party that you needed to have to vote for whatever however that sentence needed to be phrased um, needed to be more moderate than the one on offer in 2021 I couldn't identify how it was a conservative party like we had 
And that to me is the problem. Like that is you've pulled the rubber band as far as you can. And the next step is it breaks. I think that's very interesting. And I, um, we talked a little bit before uh, while we've been talking here today about there being people who are actually just liberals. They don't think of themselves as big L liberals, but that's who they're going to vote for. And we've also talked about the people you've talked about before who will never vote liberal. They just won't. And I wonder, there, there are probably people in this country today who, for whatever reason, will never vote liberal, but would vote for a party that was not the liberals, but was an otherwise identical to them in terms of personality, tone, policies, uh, et cetera. And I think some of those people out there who, for whatever reason, again, I can't speak to this, who are really angry or frustrated or disappointed or alienated from the liberals desperately want the conservatives to become liberal so that those people have someone to vote for other than the only party they would, which is the liberals. And I, I wonder how much of that is a thing, because there probably are people like that in this country. How many writings do they make up a significant percentage of the population enough to actually flip from red to blue? I don't know, zero. Um, so it, it's, it's important to understand, right, that there's a self-selection bias to this. A lot of the people we're talking about, we see in the newspaper, on Twitter, various places where it's not reflective of the overall population, right? These sort of, um, there are a lot of people who are liberals because they just are, like they they fundamentally think they fall somewhere on a spectrum between the conservatives and the new Democrats. Um, I, I, I like to joke that, that they dislike our guns, but like the money a lot. Um, and that, that might be explain their positioning. Um, but they're, they're culturally maybe familially, um, but certainly in their preferences, very committed to this sort of, I kind of want to call it like a little Canada notion. <laughs> um, this sort of idea of, you know, we are this country of blue berets and hockey sticks and and this sort of Laurentian ideal of Canada, right? How Canadians sort of perceived themselves from abroad for 30 or 40 years. Um, I don't think there's a ton of people that see themselves that way, um, but there's definitely a few. I do think more and more, and we've seen this in Ontario, um, and there was a, a piece I'd written for the line right after the Ontario election about how business liberals aren't a thing anymore. Um, the, the question I was asking myself about a, a more moderate conservative party, I think liberals are very soon to ask themselves about a more left-wing liberal party, which is, okay, if we can't convince these new democratic swing voters to vote for us, what would that take? And at that point, how would we become perceptibly different from new Democrats? Um, and that is, I think, where the Liberal Party's headed. And certainly, I think, where its activist base wants to go. Um, 
so I, I think part of the problem we're encountering is the change in the alignment of our politics is changing the liberals we knew as well. I, look, I, I I don't pretend to speak for the Liberal Party of Canada. Um, they would probably prefer it if I if I didn't. Um, you, by the way, almost certainly. One of the things I have noticed is liberals of a certain age will speak about Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin in a way they do not speak of Justin Trudeau. John Turner, too, by the way. Uh, yeah, but I just sort of look at them funny when they when they go back that far. It's like, okay, take me back, back to your room. Um, I I think something we, we we have not left ourselves enough time to talk about this. Maybe we have to have uh, have you back. Actually, you know what? We could bring a couple guys back. Like this is again, this is the first time we've done a, a video or a podcast with anyone other uh, than Jen because Jen has no voice today. But we could we could have a broader conversation about this. You just touched on something that I think is relevant, and I wish we had more time to talk about this: the notion of a realignment. Mm-hmm. And I think that's happening. And it it, no, like, yeah, you're right. It is. And I, I have in a couple of columns, uh, some, some of the lines, some at TVO, I have been writing about how conservatives have been chasing the blue collar vote for decades and they're not getting it federally yet, but they got it in Ontario a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And I don't think we've, I don't think we understand how big a shift that could be. And we've already seen that in the United States to some extent, where people who traditionally would have been the working class voters the Democrats would have taken for granted are in some cases the most passionate Trump supporters, not even Republican supporters, Trump supporters. Somebody talked to them about their issues in language they understood. And I, I don't know if Polyev is going to be successful at that, but I have a pretty good feeling he's going to try that. And so- I think we're seeing that already. So it's important to understand, I think, that this isn't, you're, you're right to point out that this isn't new, okay? Uh, when it happened in the 80s, right, famously in the United States with the Macomb County voters outside of Detroit with Ronald Reagan, it was, it was done on a foreign policy basis. It was done, Reagan was going to win the Cold War, he was the only person who was going to stand up to the Soviets, this kind of, like, it was done on a patriotism sort of, like, strong America basis, Right? Um, Margaret Thatcher, same kind of thing happened, uh, in the UK and then free trade, like the, the free trade era kind of screws this up a little bit. Um, cause we saw offshoring and a whole bunch of things that occurred, um, at the end of the eighties and into the nineties. And that kind of screwed up that, that transformation that I think wanted to take place and didn't. Um, but what, what did happen is the free trade era. And we talked about this a moment ago, well, longer than that now, but it, it sort of allowed the left to embrace free markets, right? So Clinton, Blair in Canada, Martin, and, the, and now Trudeau, um, in a way that it had previously sort of been uncomfortable with, right? Famously, the 1988 uh, free trade election in this country involved somebody erasing the border between Canada and the United States. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm barely old enough to remember that weirdness. Uh, it, was, it was strange. Um, but that, that shift has to have a countervailing effect, right? So you, what you end up with 
is a couple of very interesting questions that I think probably have to have their threads pulled on um, at a federal level. The first is, um, how close is Charlie Angus to losing Timmons? Because the last election would indicate pretty close. The Tories hold the seat provincially. It, now it's, it's a different set of, of lines, of boundaries. Um, but George Peary wiped out Gilles Bisson had been in that riding for 32 years. It was a 65% margin. Um, the next question, and, and more indicative of whether this shift can hold long-term, right? And 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 in which Polyev's elect, electoral victory in Quebec over Jean Charest could be a very interesting canary in the coal mine. There are a whole lot of voters in the province of Quebec who look exactly like people who vote conservative in the rest of the country. Keep in mind, the Ford F-150, right, burns gas like you wouldn't believe has been the number one selling vehicle in the province of Quebec for the better part of the last two decades. The reason, the predominant reasons given that these people do not vote for conservatives are usually language and culture. They think conservatives don't respect their language and don't respect their, their history and culture. I'm not saying they're correct. I'm saying this is what they think. Does this realignment allow voters who, under all other circumstances, if they were in English Canada, would vote conservative to vote conservative? And what does that do to the map? Because Pierre just found a few, like tens of thousands of voters exactly like that in the province of Quebec in order to beat somebody who, by the way, saved the country from separation in 1995. Like, Pierre, like defeating Jean Charest in Quebec is, is, I mean, I don't really have a, a, an equivalency to that. Like, it's got to be like beating Tiger at Augusta. Like, like that has to be the only, or, or Earnhardt at Daytona or something, right? Like, that I has can to tell, be- I can tell you for a fact, Mitch, the Charest people didn't expect that. I yeah. didn't expect that. But that's probably look. I was talking to some of the charade people during the leadership race, and the look, some of them were like, "Hey, we have a narrow path to victory." Others were like, "No, we're going to get clobbered, but we'll do well in Quebec." And then they didn't have a narrow path to victory. They didn't do well in Quebec, and I kind of feel bad for them because like you never like to see someone with absolutely no saving grace narrative. Um, uh, but yeah, no, I, I did, I did notice that. We we got to wrap this up, Mitch, only because I got to go feed my my uh, barbarians upstairs. But I want to I want to yield the floor to you for a, a final comment here. We've been talking about an hour now. Take it anywhere you want, but it's it's been a, it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm glad we could have it. What do you want to leave us with? More people like. The people who listen to this podcast are going to be a unique audience because they've already shown an above average interest in Canadian politics. I want them to ask people that they don't usually talk about politics with if they've seen one of Pierre Polyev's videos. Yeah. And what they think. And don't don't judge them. Don't don't anticipate a longer political conversation. Literally just ask, have you seen a video and what did you think? And let them talk. I've done this a few times. 
Um, and every time I did, I came away more and more convinced he's going to be Justin Trudeau. Because the answer, like, I wasn't getting typical political answers. I was getting, it's, it's about time somebody talked about that. Or, yeah, I'm that pissed off too. Or that, or that is ridiculous. Like the, the, the lawn chair outside the passport office. I think I talked to five people on my street who saw that video. So just ask them if they've seen it. By the way, liberals do this too, because you'll have some fun. And then ask them what they thought. I told you uh, earlier uh, during our chat about how my dad came home from getting a beard trim and a haircut, convinced that the Stephen Harper guy was going to be prime minister, and he ended up being right. I have always had... I'm too invested in politics and the news. Like I know I'm abnormal because like 90% of people don't care about the news. I'm the the 1% of the 10% that has to cater to that 10%. Like I, I'm not objective. I am way too steep in this stuff. I rely on my wife's friends as my barometer of who's going to win elections. And they have never let me down. My wife's friends have a 100% bellwether effectiveness rate for me. And I haven't asked them the Polyev question, but I guess now um, it's harder to see them all now because we have kids and, and lives and stuff, but I will, I will make a point of doing that. So Mitch, thank you for joining me. This is the first time we've ever done this. Um, I, I hope we'll do it again. I hope the, the listeners and the viewers enjoy it. It is a Friday evening. You have carved out time. Uh, the, the real reason I'm ending this now is because my beer is now empty. So uh, that. That is a natural uh, way of, of bringing the conversation to a close. But Mitch Heimpel, thank you for joining me. Great to have you here. We really appreciated this. It was a lot of fun, Matt. Thanks. Folks, we'll take good care. Uh, sending love and best wishes to Jen and her inflamed throat. This is Macaroni. And all our friends out east. And out east, absolutely. Macaroni for the line. Take care. <laughs>